Welcome, friends and colleagues. I'm redictating my previous podcast because there was some kind of an annoying white noise in the background. And I've taken the opportunity to make it a little different. And I hope better. Hope you think so, too. So we'll start with um, kind of a quick review of the assumptions of this podcast. Uh, We start with the assumption that the most influential, the greatest book in history is so because it uses certain techniques that are almost supernatural in their ability to convince and influence people. Uh, There are many techniques. It's a wonderful book of persuasion, but amongst them are several that uh, stand out. Uh, It enrolls the readers into the process of interpretation by leaving lacunae, leaving empty spaces that the reader's imagination naturally fills in. It requires the reader to interpret uh, and that makes the reader a partner in the creation of the text. And if you bought into something, if you contributed something, you have made an effort, it becomes that much more yours. And finally, it knows exactly how to reach to the archetypes of uh, human psychology, how to get into the guts of the reader to really profoundly inspire and move him or her. It builds stories and narratives very skillfully with the use of foreshadowing, uh, split-screen presentation, skillful use of language, and uh, many such things. And it has overarching themes. There's like the great themes, there are themes that are a little less important, there are wise sayings. On every level it engages the reader, convinces, educates and uplifts. So last time we talked about the two presentations of creation in chapter 1 and in chapter 2. This has been noticed as far back down as Philo in uh, Alexandria more than 2,000 years ago, as well as by several modern interpreters, and we discussed that chapter one is a more natural, uh, presenting the grand overview of creation, and a man is presented as basically part of nature whereas in the second chapter we focus on the actual interactions, the softer view, a view from the human perspective. God and man, man and wife, family and children. The first chapter gives you a view of multiplicity or rather the two how's that well if you if you read it you'll notice that on each day there are two things that are created 
Like on the first day, there's heaven and earth. Then there is water above and below the sky. There's light and darkness. There's morning and light. Every day, two things are created. Another interesting thing is that every created being, except for, once I will now explain, are presented as a species. In Hebrew, you can say a singular standing for the plural of a species. Like instead of animals, you might say animal. You can say animals too, but there is a difference between the two. In that when you say, when you present a species or, or a group in singular, it is whole. It is one and united. It's not a collection of individuals. For example, if you look at Genesis 32, 6, <clears throat> when Jacob meet, meets his brother Esau, he sends him a message. And he says to him, trying to mollify him, that, you know, take what you want and leave me alive. He says, Vahili and I have, or I had, and then he lists things. Shore, cows, hamor, donkeys, tzon, sheep, evet, slaves, vishibcha, and maid servants. But all of this expressed with a single word. Basically, it says, I have cow, and donkey, and a sheep, and slave, and a maid servant. And, and obviously, that's not much of an impressive achievement to have one of each. So Rashi there, the commentary Rashi, points out that is a, is a way of the language to say uh, for many bulls, for example, say bull. Or he brings an example from common speech. You say, the rooster has called, meaning the morning has broken, and not roosters. And although in the movies sometimes we hear just one rooster, the truth is, anyone has experienced it, that it's a cacophony of roosters. One rooster starts off, and then all the others open up. So really should say roosters crowed, but we say in the language rooster. Nevertheless, there is a difference between using a singular, which is a unifying name for a group. We understand it's a group of many individuals, but it's a unified group. And using uh, the actual plural, which looks at the group as a, as a um, collection of individuals. So everything that's created on the first day is in the singular, except several things. Really, only three things. There is heaven and earth, for which it said in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. Use the word bara, create. In verse 21 of the first chapter, it says that God created two great serpents. Created two serpents, big serpents. So uh, this is a very mysterious verse, because why do we have to isolate one species and uh, present it as a separate creation. At that point, we are forming and making things. These are the verbs that we use. Why did you create two uh, serpents? Um, 
There are different ways commentators deal with it. Um, the most currently fashionable is Kasuta's suggestion that we want to specifically negate the Near Eastern myths of the world being created from a great serpent whom Arduk fought with and slayed and then divided into two and heaven was made from one half and the earth was made from another way in passing referring to negating it saying no 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 that's not that's not really what happened uh, there were two serpents there were creation of God that's why it used the word creation completely under his power and due to his volition nothing divine about that I would offer a different explanation that whenever the word create is used um, in this first chapter, we want to choose the idea of multiplicity being one, that uh, it is possible to have two great serpents, which is part of creation, meaning we've created two things which are unified. Um, in this way, we're introducing the concept of unity and division. I will speak about that in a minute some more. And the third place where the word creation is used in this chapter is creation of men. Now that's really interesting because in one sentence it used the word create three times. It also talks about men and women as being one. I'm sorry, as, as being unified too. So this is what it actually says. It says, Vaibra Elohim is Adam. God created men. Zahar v'nekeva osa osam. He made them male and female. So again, you have two which equals one. Therefore, you can use the word bara. So just a review. Heaven and earth is two, therefore you use the word create. Two which is one, that requires a special act of creation to be able to put two opposites together. Uh, the two great serpents are also can be said to be created because this is a two which equals one. And then men, men and women are two, we are, but in this chapter, they are one. So use the word creation. Uh, what's the purpose for this? The purpose is to begin to introduce the concept of separation and how that messed up the created world, of which we learn more in chapter 2. Now, there is another place in the first chapter with two things were created. God created two luminaries. The word creation is not used there. It says God made, osa, uh, the two uh, luminaries. Uh, but then they were actually not uh, two equals, which were one. One was the great one, the big one, to serve the day, and then there was the small one to serve in the night. So if anything, this exception where, when instead of talking about uh, species in singular it talks about them in plural uh, God created the big luminary and the small luminary and they were not the same so the word create would not be appropriate 
the word make would be appropriate. And that's what we in fact see. By men, it uses the word create three times. And we will talk more about this, how we move from numbers two to number three and what it, it means in terms of man's nature. It says, God made man in his image. He made him, created him in the image of God. Second time they use create, uh, the use of the word creation, second time in this verse. Zahar bora also. He made him male and female. So each component of man that he is in his image, image is the image of God, and that he is male and female uh, required the use of the word creation. All three of these examples uh, unify the disparate, the two. It's interesting, in the second chapter, where the two come apart, the men and the women are not the same. They are now described differently, and they think differently, and they want different things. It says that a male and a female created he them, or some. There's a change in the word. In first chapter, it's created him. In the second chapter, created them. We'll go back to it. From the perspective of the sound and, and intonation and musical presentation, the word create appears, therefore, in a very interesting pattern. This uh, creation of the heaven and the earth, there is the creation of two great serpents, and suddenly by man it's created, created, created three times. Sort of like a long note, a half note, and three quarter notes. Ta, 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 ta. Now, why tell us about the serpents at all? So I want to offer a different explanation. We mentioned Kasuta's explanation. It was to negate the, Eastern, the Near Eastern myth. Uh, the various commentaries offer other explanations, such as these things were so big and so unusual that they needed to be presented. But I noticed something else. I noticed that on the day in which the great serpents were created, it becomes that's one day in which it's not so clear that there is uh, a pair, it's a two. Like we said, the first day there was heaven and earth, and then we went through the list. Every day there was there was my uh, water above the sky uh, and the water below the firmament. Every day there is two things. But in the day in which the two serpents were created, it's not so clear. Uh, there is uh, now the fish and there is the birds. And the impression you get is that of many different creatures all over the place. Therefore, it is on this day that the essential two-ness that there are two different things created every day had to be reinforced and therefore we were told about the creation of two serpents now what is this whole one and two theme that's running through here i would offer a philosophical explanation and a psychological explanation 
From the philosophical perspective, there is an approach that sees all of reality as a balance between two alternatives. So that there are two separate alternatives and then they are surpassed in the creation of something new. This is started off as an explanation of concepts and reasoning and went on to develop its own life. The person who is uh, credited for this idea is Hegel, a German philosopher, a German idealist philosopher, who believed that it is said, uh, uh, presented of him, that he understood everything being a polarity, a bipole of two things. There is thesis on one side, let's say extreme left, there is antithesis on the extreme right. In a moment of conflict called catharsis, the two are joined and become one. And uh, what produces called synthesis. Now this thing, the synthesis now becomes a part of the dipole. It becomes the extreme left of a concept. And there is now another concept, which is an extreme right. And the process begins again. There's a moment of catharsis, and there's again a creation of a unified thing. Now, Hegel himself never really portrayed that. There's only one place where he talked about, uh, did some literary analysis of a work where he used these terms. Uh, Kant thought it was basic to his uh, theory of knowledge uh, because this kind of two plus one triad uh, does appear in his other writings, although he doesn't explain it this way. And Fichte thought that this was uh, not Hegel's idea at all. Fine, that was a very influential idea. Uh, and Marx took it to the concept of dialectical materialism, where he actually described material and things as a dipole, which has to be surpassed. That's philosophical, fine, but it doesn't explain everything. I would propose a different explanation. To me, the overarching theme of the first chapters of creation is how everything was created to be united, and then it, you can say, went south. It went bad. It disunited. It separated. There was now conflict in the world. That was the great failing and brokenness of creation. So, in chapter 1, we still see that the world was created to be one, under one God, uh, composed of doubles, which are united in themselves, and so also is man, uh, a man and a woman, united in themselves. So we'll talk much more about this, because the theme is, continues to be developed through the first few chapters. From there, we go on to the fact that in chapter 2, it broke. There was rebellion, the men and the women were separate, uh, they disobeyed God, now they were separate from him as well. And um, in the following chapters, we proceed on to family, and we find that family also separates. The failing continues. Cain uh, kills Abel, Cain kills his brother, and there's another layer of brokenness. 
Uh, next solution to the problem of discord and disunity is society. Society is also broken by the generation of the flood. There is oppression, violence, and it enrolls some of the angels. We will talk about how obvious this idea is in the actual text, but um, the sons of God, whoever they are, we'll discuss that, also get enrolled in the disunity of the whole society. Then comes the fix, the Tower of Babel, a very unified totalitarian, forcibly united humanity. Then it also breaks, and breaks with God's insistence. He confuses their language. So therefore we have the creation of nations. So there's this theme of attempts to unify and then brokenness and dispersion. The first chapter, therefore, leads us to this overarching theme. And ultimately, it is solved by nations, and more specifically, by the nation with whom God makes a covenant. Uh, it's certainly one way of looking at it. Siporna, uh, in his introduction, goes along the same lines to a great degree, without sounding the theme of unity dispersion quite to the same degree as I had, but it, it is a, an overall unifying uh, presentation of the main ideas. It is remarkable how the biblical text uh, reaches deep into our souls. The concept of unity and division is very, very deep in human psyche. It, you, if you want to motivate a crowd, just offer them unity in some cause, in the service of some cause. For God and country, patriotism, uh, the concept that you can recapture that innocence of the original creation, you can subsume yourself and become one with others, or one with concepts such as country and honor, etc. Uh, drove men into battle, forgetting their own personal risk, made them a collective devoted to some cause. Uh, and the concept of restoration, if it's added to this very deep human drive, uh, has motivated many societies to great sacrifice. So it is remarkable that the book uh, that we are reading now had the direct access to all these themes and has employed them in such a skillful manner to create the greatest book on earth. Thank you for listening and may you have only blessings.